0: And as you listen, I pray that you are encouraged and that you would be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ as we behold him in his glory. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. On April 29th, 1945, in the middle of the Second World War, a man went above and beyond the call of duty for the sake of his fellow troops. His battalion's mission was very straightforward. They were to climb a 400-foot cliff known as Maeda's Escarpment. And at the top of this cliff, they were supposed to overtake the remnant of Japanese soldiers on its top. However, plans went awry when as soon as they reached the summit, they realized that there was much more than a remnant left. There were lots of soldiers on the top of the mountain. And under heavy machine gun fire, huge artillery bombs, with shrapnel exploding through the air, lighting up the sky, the United States troops started dropping quickly. And on that day, in the midst of an all out war, one man, Desmond Doss, decided that he would risk his life and limb, literally, mm-hmm. to help save his fellow men. And what I want you to imagine is being one of the men on that cliff. And you've been hurt. You've been shot, and you're wounded, and you're bleeding, and you're surrounded on every side by the enemy. You have no hope of rescue, of escape. That is, until you feel the hand of a man on your shoulder. And though you deserve to die, and you expect to die, you quickly realize that this man is not a foe. He's a friend. And this is not a friend who will leave you, but instead, he will carry you. All the way out of the firefight and into safety. How would you feel towards such a friend? How would you feel towards that man? Well, do you know that all of you here tonight who have been saved by God have been rescued from a worse circumstance? You have been overtaken by, from a greater foe. God has delivered you from deeper danger. Please turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and following will be our text for this evening. And before we read, I'd like to pray. Lord, um, your word is inerrant, it's inspired, it's holy. And my words are not, God. And I pray that you would communicate only your thoughts, only your words, only your intentions to these students tonight. to myself as well, Lord, would you reveal our sin? Would you lead us to repentance and the good fruit that comes in that? Humble us, God, allow us to hear from your voice tonight and equip us for the work of the ministry. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. 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 Ephesians 4, 17. We enter our text tonight on the heels of some very rich theology in chapter 4 that we've been studying. If you're just joining us, we've been working our way through the whole book of Ephesians. But in chapter 4, Paul commands believers to live our lives in humility and gentleness, verse 2. He encourages us that we're joined in one spirit and one body, verse 4. He says that we're given gifts by God to share with the church, with his people, verse 7. He reminds us that our aim is to build the church, verse 12. He reminds us that we are supposed to grow in maturity and to stand steadfast in the knowledge of God, verse 14. Verse 14. And we are to be joined to believers as Christ is the church, verse 15. And those of you with a particularly sharp memory, I would struggle with this. You might also recall some of the foundation we've been laying in Ephesians 1 through 3. Some big truths. We're adopted by God in Christ, we're granted all things in Jesus. We've been made alive in Christ through, though we once were dead, and we'll forever be coming to a greater knowledge of how deep and wide. And the breath of his love. Praise God for that. And these things are written to fill you believers with hope and with encouragement. But maybe you're like me, and sometimes you hear a very good sermon, or you hear very good preaching, you read a good book, you're studying about God and theology and doctrine. But then you're just kind of left with a, well now what? Okay, I have this knowledge, now what? What What's this supposed to do in my life? And that's exactly where we're at tonight in our passage. Paul is telling us the now what? What now? What now, believer? And I would invite you, please stand as we read our passage tonight in Ephesians 4. Now, this I say, and I testified in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What is his truth? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. You may be seated. The title of my message tonight is one that may sound familiar to you. From Death to Life. From Death to Life, if you're taking notes. And though it is the name of the sermon for Easter Sunday, you are hearing version 1.0 tonight. So know that when you come next Sunday, you will hear a different sermon on some of the same themes. And in my sermon tonight, I have two points. Okay? Stop walking and start living. Stop walking start living. Point number one, stop walking. Sometimes in the Bible, when we translate it from Greek into English, the emphasis of certain words is lost. And this, at the beginning of our text, is one of those times. Look at verse 17. It says, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord. This is here, it's an exaggeration. Paul's saying, Listen here, listen here, as if you didn't hear it the first time. And the word that he uses, that's now rendered as testify, the second word in that phrase, is the same word that a Roman governor would come and he would say before he gave a speech to an audience. And the word would be literally translated, I decree. I decree this to come to pass. So this word is coming with authority. And not only with regular authority, but with the authority in the Lord, as he says. A.K.A. this is what God says. It's not just Paul. It's what God says. And this reminds me of a story that has become famous in my wife's family. She's probably rolling her eyes as she hears this story. One time when Emma was giving instruction to her younger sister, Olivia, uh, Olivia didn't want to listen to her older five-year-old sister. And Emma confirmed, no, Olivia, you need to listen to me. You need to listen. And Emma had an ace in her pocket. You know what she said? Mom said. Mom said you have to do this, Olivia. Mom said you have to do it. And because Mom said... Therefore, you have to do it. Emma's using a command, but it's not based on her authority as a five-year-old child. It's based on her mom's authority as an adult, as the parent of the household. And that's what we see here. Paul is a human author, but his authority stretches to heaven because he's an inspired writer of the New Testament. And he's not afraid to remind us of this. And it's good because we need to remember that this is God speaking. This is not just a man. And also, it's not just a letter that he's written to the Ephesian church, but in a lot of ways, it's a letter written to you, Redeemer students, right now. It's inspired by the same author, God, and it's applied through the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in you tonight. So, then what is Paul testifying and saying and reminding the Ephesians to do? Verse 17, you must no longer walk. This is where I get my word, stop walking. Stop walking. Stop walking. Okay, walking how? He says in the next line. As the Gentiles do. So, zoom out a little bit. What's a Gentile? What's a Gentile? Gentile is, historically, anyone who's not a part of the nation of Israel. Many Israelites at this time were still reluctant to believe that God could or actually wanted to save anyone that was outside of the nation of Israel. But what we see here is that Paul is tweaking this definition. It's not just about who's a part of the nation of Israel. It's about who's part of God's chosen people. Which question? You can answer this one. Who are God's chosen people now? The church. The church? church. That's right. All who put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is the new criteria. And so when Paul says Gentile in this passage, he's not saying a person from a specific nation. He's saying an unbeliever. You must not walk as the unbelievers do. You can just... Every time you see that word in our passage... Think unbeliever. Okay? As we continue in our text... Paul is urging the Ephesian church... To not walk like these unbelievers. And the next question... That you would probably ask in this sequence is... Okay, well, how do they walk? What are we supposed to avoid? Paul, tell us. Enlighten us. And he goes... On our tangent, I feel like. And he just really lays it on thick. And we're going to dive into it. In verse 18. He says... Oh, excuse me. Let me backtrack half a verse. And the end of verse 17. He says he walked... they walk in the futility of their minds. So what is something that is futile? It's something that's useless. It's purposeless. This word is actually the same word used in Ecclesiastes when it says vanity. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. That's another sermon. But it's important to know that when he says... He's saying that their mind is unstable, it's purposeless, it's ineffective, it's empty, it's vain. The mind, the thought center of every unbeliever, is ultimately futile. An unbeliever may be able to excel in school, it may be an exceptional athlete, it might be a superstar you see on TV, it might be your favorite celebrity that you see on Instagram. They might be a hugely successful business person. But the end of all of their work on life, on on this earth, is useless, apart from Christ. There's no lasting result of these things. And it's one thing to know the definition of futility, but what does this actually mean? What is the result of a futile mind? How is it manifested? Paul tells us, going on in verse 18. It says... They are darkened in their understanding. An unbeliever is darkened in their understanding. And unlike those who are saved and experience a change of heart and mind, the unbelievers have an understanding that's unable to see properly. John Newton, who is the author of a hymn, May Heard Amazing Grace, famous hymn, he said this, There are many who stumble in the noonday, but it's not because of a lack of light because of a lack of eyes. It's a lack of eyes. They can't see. Unbelievers have a thick cloud, a fog, that covers their eyes. And it prevents them from seeing the world properly. If you're looking for reference, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, you can write down the reference. It says that in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers... To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelievers have a futile mind, a darkened understanding. And if we keep going in our text, we see that unbelievers also have been alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Not only do Gentiles or unbelievers walk with a dark understanding, but they're separated from God. They're apart from God. By nature and by choice. They're aliens of the promises of God. They have no claim on them. Ignorance here speaks of a intentional ignorance. Okay, so this is not the type of ignorance that a little three-year-old girl is is playing out in the street because she doesn't understand the danger of passing cars. That's not the ignorance spoken here. It is a willful ignorance. Where... Unbelievers have no personal knowledge of God because they don't desire it. They reject it. I would be wrong not to mention this here. Just because you know a lot about who God is, doesn't mean you're not ignorant of Him. Simply having knowledge of God doesn't save you. That's what James says about the demons. They have knowledge about God, and they shudder in disbelief. And many of the people recorded in the New Testament who had the most head knowledge of God were willfully ignorant towards Him. They didn't care about God. They cared about the God that they fabricated in their minds. One that rewarded people based on their personal righteousness and holiness. One that rewarded them based on the fact that they kept the Sabbath. They didn't care about the God who was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassionate towards sinners. They loved this idea of God that they fabricated And these people we call Pharisees. And we tend to label them, oh, those were the Pharisees, but we forget to realize that a lot of times our thoughts are very Pharisaical. They're very similar. Here's an example. I work hard in school. I get pretty good grades. I do my chores when my mom asks me to. I don't party, I don't drink, I don't smoke, like some of my friends at school do. I've been to summer camp for the last five years in a row. I have good answers in small group, I take notes in sermons, I don't gossip much, though I battle with lust, it's mostly under control. My friends think highly of me, as do my leaders. And whenever I see someone on the phone during worship or a sermon, I'm filled with righteous anger because they're not paying attention the way that I am. Have you ever thought like this? I have too. But the truth is is that Jesus condemns this behavior. And I fear that many of you here tonight who trust in your own good standing before the Lord do not see that the thoughts that I just mentioned don't flow from a loving heart towards God. They flow from a Pharisee heart towards God. One that is darkened in its understanding. One that is alienated from God because of willful ignorance within your heart. Paul continues in his explanation, giving us the result of this way of walking at the end of verse 18. If you look, he says all of this is due to their hardness of heart. Not the inability to act righteously, but the inability to see that what they are doing is wrong. And what's the end result of a hard-hearted person, alienated from God, darkened by a futile mind? Verse 19 says very clearly... These people they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Unbelievers are callous towards their sin, not recognizing that their entire lives are consumed by lies. What's more, they have given themselves up to sensuality. They have become slaves to passions in their body. Their law of life is one of sin. The things that drive them, sin. The things that rule them, sin. The things that please them, sin. And they may not look like sin. It may be reading your Bible. That could be sin. It may be attending church. That could be sin. It's about the heart. And Paul really lavishes the indictment here in the last phrase. He says, the unbelievers are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Not only are they content with the fact that they're living in sin, but they want more. They want more of it. Paul has gone through great pains to identify... That the way that unbelievers will act in this world... Is sinful. And it's not just the clear picture of the... Self-righteous Pharisee or the... Prostitute. It's not just those two extremes that our mind instantly think of. This is the way that all people act... From nature. Apart from the saving, life-giving power of the spirit of god. The truth is that our passage is really only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the miserable realities that sin creates in all human beings. And I took a few minutes to search for some in scripture, specifically in the first five book, the first five chapters of Ephesians. And in a brief survey, I found a long list, and I'm sure there's more, but I'm going to read some to you tonight. I won't read them all, enough to understand the point. These are the realities of an unbeliever. This is the fruit of their life. Ephesians 1.18 They are spiritually blind. Two one, They are dead in their sins. They are sons of disobedience. They are children of wrath. They are separated from God. They are alienated from God. Unbelievers are unstable. Hard-hearted. Slaves to sensuality. Sexually immor- immoral. Bitter. Angry. Impure. Covetous. Idolatrous. Greedy for more sin. They are far off from God. And they are without God and therefore without hope. Paul here is holding nothing back. And this is a severe indictment. It's something that we don't hear often. Something that we don't like to hear. But the truth is is that I'm not naive enough to think that every person in this room here tonight is a believer. Let's put their trust in Jesus Christ. And I would be unfaithful and unloving if I did not warn you urgently of the things that are urgent. And I want you to hear that It's not my job or my goal or my desire to come up on stage and to lecture. Don't want that. I'm here to plead with you because there are eternal realities that are at stake. And for some of you, it's based on how you respond to messages like this. This is the reality of every person until they put their faith in Jesus Christ. But what happens then when we put our faith in Christ? What happens when we repent from our sins, when we turn to Jesus and we put behind us the things that are sinful and we trust in Him? What changes in our life? Point number two, we start living. This is the change. We start living. The way of an unbeliever is death. It's one that we must stop walking in if we have any desire to know the Lord and the life that He has for His people. But the means by which we start living is not found within you. This is not a matter of how disciplined you are. This is not a matter of if I wake up at 5 o'clock every morning just like I planned and I make my bed every day and I do all my homework and I stay on top of it and I work out and I go to school and I'm on top of social activities, then I'll be good. That's never how it works. This is a reality that comes through us because of God's Spirit that indwells believers when we put our trust in him at the moment of conversion. And this is what Paul is referring to in verses 20 and 21. He says, This is not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, you were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, he reminds the Ephesians that their old life is not the way that Christ has taught them. This is not the way that they are destined to live. And if they've really heard from Jesus, when we're really taught in Jesus... Truth, then they understand that the power to obey and to live according to God's will is not in them. It's in the spirit that dwells within them. So we have the power of Christ, but where does the motivation for change, for right living, come from? Well, in part it comes from a proper understanding of the depths of our sin and how great a rescue we need, and it pushes us to desire to honor God with our lives think back to the soldiers who were saved by Desmond Dawes. They would have felt this very personally. My life should have been gone, but I have it. I should be dead, but I'm alive. How can I ever thank you for what you've done? How could I ever repay you for saving my life? And we arm ourselves with the same thought pattern as believers who have seen that God has delivered us from death and transferred us into life. We don't earn our rescue by doing this. Just like the soldiers didn't earn their rescue by telling Desmond, if you save me right here, I'm going to live my whole life thankful for you. I'm going to show grat- gratification. Thank you so much, Desmond. That was an exchange. This man was moved to save these people because he cared for them. And God was moved to save sinners because he cares for them. We desire to live for God in light of this free gift of life that he has extended to us. To all who hear the good news and trust in it. So then how can we live this out? How can we show God that we are thankful for him saving us? Well, that's what we get into in verses 22, 23, and 24. Three points. Put off the old self to be renewed in the mind and to put on the new self. We'll take them one at a time. Put off the old self. Believers are called to walk in accordance with the Spirit by putting off the old self. Putting off the old self. And the Greek word here is interesting. It refers to clothing. It refers to literally taking off clothes. Taking off your old clothes garment. Put off is speaking about clothes. And it's it's, meant, it's written this way to give us a very visible picture of what it means to put off our old nature. It's to remove it. To take it completely off. To cast it aside. To no longer trust in it. To no longer depend on it for clothing or covering. Because it's not useful. Paul is saying that we must put off our ways like a soiled garment of clothing. And there is an immediacy, there's an aspect of this that happens right when we're saved. Right when we're saved. Our eyes, for the first time, see the sickening nature of our sin, and we are right to hate it. Because it is sin, and God hates it. When I was in kindergarten, I had a friend. His name was Johnny Reitmeier, And Johnny Reitmeier got sick one day at school. And he was sitting next to me, and... He threw up on the back of my chair. (laughs) And I was horrified. (laughs) But the worst part was I realized some of it had gotten on my pant leg. You just, ugh, just even the thought of that right now. It's like 20 years removed, and I still hate it. (laughs) I still hate it. But I got it on my pant leg, and as soon as I realized that, right to the bathroom. Take off, Like, I'm getting to the bathroom. And I got to the bathroom so I could go in the stall and take my pants off. Because I was not going to keep wearing these soiled pants, okay? Especially from someone else's puke. Like, come on, is that, that's got to be, oh, I don't even like recounting this. But I will for you guys. I had to take those pants off. I had to cast them off. I had to throw them off because I did not want to sit in the filth. And this is the picture of a believer. Our eyes are opened, and we realize that our whole lives we've been living with vomit on our leg. So what do we do? We cast it off. See, I'd rather sit in the stall in my underwear than live in this. (laughs) Jesus tells us that the things that we hold dear, that empower us to sin, that encourage us to sin, we must put them off in the same way. We must cast them aside. If our right hand causes us to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with one hand than to enter with both hands to the pit of destruction. The sources of sin in our life must go. Anything that tethers our hearts, our affections to the old self, must go. Anything that is contrary to our new nature, must go. If you, um, like me, sometimes believers get caught in a season where you just don't feel the weight of how sick your sin is. I have a quote that I'd like to share with you. It's from an old dead guy. And it's rich. So listen. Here's his prescription when we fail to recognize the weight of our sin. Bring your lust to the gospel, not for relief, but for farther conviction of its guilt. Look on him who God has pierced and be in bitterness. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return that I make to the Father for His love and to the Son for His blood, to the Holy Ghost for His grace? Do I thus spurn God? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that the blessed Spirit has chosen to dwell in, and can I keep myself out of the dust? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus how shall I hold my head up with any boldness before him? Do I account communion with him of so little value that for this vile sin's sake I have scarce left him in any room in my heart? When we see and look at the gospel and the kindness that God has showed us in his son Jesus, it should cause us to hate our sin. And be willing to put off the old nature at any cost necessary. Because he has saved us so freely. The second step to this is to be renewed in mind. Like I mentioned, there's an aspect of immediacy that happens when we're made alive to God. But there's also a reality that's ongoing in this process. If you get saved tonight, are you ever going to sin again? Answer, yes. I was saved Ten years ago now, I've sinned a lot since I was saved. And the truth is, is that though this process is one that is ongoing, it's one that we must commit our lives to. Theologians call this idea mortification. Mortification just means the ongoing killing, specifically the ongoing killing of sin tonight. And this is the same process by which we live in the Spirit. It's interesting because the way that we start living according to God, is that happens at the exact same time that we put to death our old nature. There are two sides of the same coin, and it's helpful to remember that. And all the way unto eternity, God calls us to be renewed in our mind, because he understands that the ways of our old nature are going to lure us, and they're going to entice us. And we have to be committed to putting those off. But what does it mean to be renewed in mind? Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis here. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. God's aim in saving sinners is not to change their behavior. It's to change their hearts. It's to transform the old man into a new man with new desires. And our new desires are to put to death the old man, the old self. I've been reading a Phenomenal book on this subject. It was written almost 400 years ago, which is crazy. can't even imagine something 400 years ago. And the author's name is John Owen. And it's crazy because he has some very relevant things to say, and I want to share a couple of them with you. Here's what he says in regards to putting to death our sin. The first thing in mortification is the habitual weakening of it. In order to crucify it, you must prevent opportunities for its strengthening. It is killed little by little. That means that every day as we awake as believers who have trusted in Christ, who have God's spirit within us, we say, Lord, help me put to death the remaining man of sin within me. The process of putting sin to death in our life is an ongoing one, and it takes regular, consistent attention. And here's the truth that we need to think about often. The remaining sin in your life, every single day, will either gain power over you or lose power over you. Every day. There's no day where it stays the same. Every day, you're either succumbing to sin or you're conquering sin by God's Spirit within you. Here's another quote John Owen says. Do you mortify your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Are you always at it while you live? Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Point number three. To put on the new self. This is the third step in living and starting to live according to God's will. In verse 24, again, Paul resorts to the language of clothing. He says, put off, now put on. Put off, be renewed in your mind, and now put on. You're changing your thoughts. You put on the new clothing. All of these things are distinguishable, but they're inseparable. And though they're each things that we actively have a part in, we have to be obedient in by God's grace. They are not possible without the Spirit. Again, Owen says, A man may easier see without eyes and speak without a tongue than mortify one single sin apart from the power of the Spirit. That one's good. We have no hope to put to death sin if it's not by the power of God's Spirit working within us. And we can't have true life in the Spirit unless we're continually putting off the old, being renewed in mind, and putting on the new. This is the... Idea that's articulated in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. And it says this to believers. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. When we walk according to the Spirit, and we feed the things of the Spirit in our life, we are naturally, inherently starving the things of the flesh. As we put our energy, our focus, our devotion, our affections on the things of God, we will be inclined towards them and therefore decline from, disassociated from the things of the flesh, of our old nature, of the sinful, wicked nature that we're born with. When we do this, the fruit of God's Spirit will inevitably reveal itself. In our lives. In a sinner's life. Which is incredible. This is a famous passage. Galatians 5.22. Does anyone know what it lists? Fruits of the Spirit. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, kindness goodness, goodness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness love and self-control. I probably had the ordinary myself. <laughs> All of these things will... Come out of a life that loves God. And that's the amazing thing. Even the pr- production of fruit and success in our spiritual journey is a byproduct of us being devoted to God. It's something that we don't have to strive and say, oh, God, make more joy in me, make more faithfulness in me. All we do is trust God, rely on Him in prayer. And he will produce that within us. It's a byproduct. And it's amazing. Putting on the new self means to abide in Christ. This is what Jesus says in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. And you will produce fruit. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We should be humbled by this, but also encouraged, because it's God's work. Philippians 1, 6 says that the work that God begins in you believer, he will be faithful to complete it. That is good news. That is good news. This is possible because it's done by the same spirit that dwelt within Jesus (laughs) on earth. Let me share one last picture for you to think on tonight as we close. Unbelievers, therefore all of us, by nature, are born with filthy vomit rags for clothes. We can't even see it. When Christ enters the heart of a soul and allows us to see our wickedness and empowers us to cast off the ways of darkness, our old clothes, he doesn't just leave us naked and helpless. This is the beauty of the gospel. We're not a five-year-old in the bathroom stall Hopeless and helpless without our pair of pants <laughs> in our underwear. God does not leave us to fend for ourselves. Instead, He clothes us personally and not at no cost to Him. The clothing that we receive came at the cost of His Son. And on the cross, the great exchange was conducted whereby we are joined together in Christ, and Christ is joined together with us. And the dirty clothes that we come to the Lord in are cast aside, and instead we're clothed with a robe of righteousness. And so that when Jesus looks at us, when God looks at us from heaven, He doesn't see our old filthy rags and our wicked ways and our still working on sanctification. God sees Jesus. Jesus. And that's why we can pray to Him and know that He hears us. And that's why we can think of the ways that we fail and say, but in Christ, God loves me and He approves of me. This truth is captured beautifully that God gives us His robes in one of my favorite hymns. It's called His Robes for Mine. This line says this, His robes for mine, a wonderful exchange Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are kind to us to reveal the sickening nature of our sin. To offer your son And to say that all who believe may come to you. It's not just the nation of Israel. It's all who put their trust in you. Lord, that is so kind, God. I pray that that would grip our hearts tonight. As we think of you, Lord, that you would transform our thoughts to be more heavenly and less earthly. God, and that your work would continue to flourish and thrive in the hearts of these students. As they put their faith in you each day. Lord, awaken us. To see when we err and stray and allow us to be brought back near you because of your gospel. Lord, you are so kind and gracious to us. Help us to live a life of thanksgiving in response. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You are dismissed.